Unusual Suspects with Owen Brennan, a Go Loud original. So, yeah, one evening in January 1993, a sort of typically cold, bad weather evening in January here, there's a Brinks Depot, which is one of the larger, most historic money-protecting companies in the country. And so one night, some masked gunmen go in. They pretty much take down the guards who were in there counting the money. Uh, they, they pull a van uh, into the depot. They load up $7.4 million and drive off with a hostage. And they're gone. This is a story about a crime. Gunmen entered the Brinks armored car facility on South Avenue last night wearing ski masks. At least $7 million is missing. It's a crime unlike any other. They are an unlikely cast of defendants. The Irish priest of Manhattan. It's got more twists and turns than a dime novel. The IRA man turned comic book dealer. You can't make this stuff up. And an ex-cop. This is like a once in a career case. All drawn together by one of the biggest heists in American history. Little did we know FBI are watching 24 hours a day. $7.4 million vanished. The FBI chasing the strangest group of suspects and trying to untangle a web that stretches from Belfast and the H-blocks and blanket protests along Kesh all the way to the pages of Spider-Man comics and the streets of Manhattan. Well, have you met Father Pat? He was a worthy adversary, let's just put it that way. I refer to him as the FBI. In order to be one of them, you have to be a sociopath and a pathological liar. You have to be. When the Army, the Navy and the Air Force come to take me away years ago, they covered the front of the building, the back of the building, what happened was this is unusual suspects i'm owen brennan and over the course of this series i'm going to bring you inside the incredible story of the 1993 rochester brinks heist a 7.4 million dollar robbery to begin our story i'm in rochester in upstate new york the city sits on the shores of lake ontario it's at the northern tip of new york state bordering canada and hundreds of miles from the metropolis of manhattan The winters here are brutal. It's one of the Rust Belt cities, once home to industrial giants like Kodak and Xerox, the kind of place that was built on immigration and embodied the American dream in a lot of ways. But by 1993, this was a city fading from its glory years. And here in Rochester, the exact place where our story begins is the former Rochester Brinks Depot. It's a one-story building. It's nestled in a secluded inlet just off a quiet road. It's got a faded brick front, the gravel driveway is overgrown, it's speckled with water-filled potholes. You'd easily drive by here a hundred times and probably never notice it. You'd almost certainly never guess this is where tens of millions of dollars were stored and sorted every night. And that's exactly what happened here. Armoured cash trucks from all across the surrounding areas would come and go all day, collecting and dropping off massive sums of cash. It's very nondescript, this sort of block building... Uh, I don't even know if that may be the same mirror that they talked about was sort of the security mirror that you're supposed to be able to see who's looking in. We're at the depot now with Gary Craig. Gary's a reporter in Rochester and he's the author of a book called Seven Million that tells the story of the Brinks heist. It's easy for one, the way it's located. It's really hard to even get into the parking lot. It's easy to miss. And I think a lot of people had no clue that this was a, a Brinks depot unless you drove by saw the trucks and the trucks were often on the road during the day so later in the day that the trucks might amass here another example of what they wanted to point out is the sort of level of security 
the, the guy who worked at night to guard that money, the night that there would be 10 to 20 million on a truck, uh, sometimes also was the janitorial service. He cleaned up the place inside too. <laughs> Really? Yes, he did. I mean, I think they just asked him to do it. I don't think he was hired as a janitor. It's like, hey, can you sweep while you're here overnight? Now, when you hear this is a heist of $7.4 million, you probably think the plan to steal it must be so brilliant and daring that it must be the carefully plotted and meticulously executed work of criminal masterminds. But no, this story is not Ocean's Eleven. This is something completely different. The security was... uh bad <laughs> and I, I mean even to this day you know still sort of marvel at how how bad it was these doors here which were supposed to be pretty secure but you know, by some accounts if you just sort of gave it a good shove with your arm uh, the, the lock would not hold uh, you know and there's you know this door supposedly a pizza guy walked in with a pizza one night and just walked right into not just this initial door but then the interior door that takes you into the uh, the vault room where the money is counted where the money is stored or was stored uh, yeah there the, yeah you can't blame all that on brinks that was partly the i think the the level of fear that the guards had they just were became unconcerned that anything would happen and they would prop you know they'd go to the restroom and they'd prop the doors open with magazines and pencils and things like that i think they had just gotten so I mean, it's it's odd to think that, you know, having millions of dollars at your fingertips can get boring, but counting it night after night after night, I think they were just, and their minds had gotten dulled by the thing, and I don't think they ever really imagined anything would ever happen as it did. So the night of the robbery, uh, basically the guard's task is to count literally millions of dollars and package them away depending on whatever bank it's going to. You know, Bank X may want $200,000. And so you get the shipment for Bank X. Bank Y, bank y wants $150,000. And you get the shipment ready for Bank Y. And that's going to be taken around. So that evening after everybody was back at the depot, they're going through this really it's still amazing thing, as well as the security of the depot. I mean, it is 20-plus years ago, so you have to consider that. But how sort of in the city that's kind of credited for great automation and innovation with Kodak, et cetera, how just sort of bare bones this operation was counting this money, just sitting around and placed it on like boards on cinder blocks and counting the money up and packaging it. It just was really pretty technologically primitive. It was January 5th, 1993, and it was a typically icy winter night in Rochester. There were three guards on duty that night. Milton Deal, Dick Popovich and Tom O'Connor. So they're counting the money out, kind of a cold night, and Tom O'Connor says, we need some more bags, which are in a shed, some of them outside. And Milton Deal later testifies that he doesn't think they need more bags, but he didn't know. And then Tom goes away. And then the next thing you know, Milton, who's in one part of the building, and, and Dick, who's in another at this time, both of them are sort of overtaken by gunmen wearing masks. I was actually in the vault itself. This is Dick Popovich, one of the guards. And my back was turned to the door and I was doing some paperwork. And I happened to look to the outside and there was an individual standing there in Carhartt type clothing, you know, hunting equipment. His, his face was um, covered entirely as only his eyes and mouth sh- shown. And he, he had a, I think it was a 357 pointed it at me didn't say anything, just went, huh! And I knew enough to get my butt on the floor. 
Now, I was armed, but there was no, you know, it would be foolish to even try to do anything. So I laid on the floor, and um, he took me out of the vault and laid me next to another guy who was working in the outer room and uh, tied our hands behind our back, and we laid on the floor. They put our heads in these dirty coin canvas bags. What? I really wasn't scared. I was concerned because in all the training films that we, we saw, they always, always killed the guards needlessly. You know, even if they weren't seen. So I, it's funny, but I, the thought that I had was, am I going to know how to die? Silly, but that's the way it was. As I was laying there, because I wasn't able to see, my ears were doing a lot of seeing for me. And I could hear what was going on. I became at ease after a while because someone came and made sure that the airway was open for us to breathe. So I figured, well, they're not keeping us alive so he can kill us later. So I felt, I felt more at ease. And I can hear, you know, shuffling going on. The most distinctive thing that I heard was the patter of tiny feet, which was reminiscent of a very small uh, girl or woman, you know, tiptoeing around. But I could almost describe the uh, vehicle by the way the doors sounded as they slid. You know, it had kind of a mental picture, although I wasn't seeing anything. You have the FBI swarming to the scene because it's kind of there, especially if it's going to be money going across international borders, which people thought oh, that maybe that's where it's going to go. Maybe they're going to try to get it to Canada. Uh, you have, the, obviously, the Rochester police at the scene. And so it was just this, you know, bevy of law enforcement there, uh, some state police there. And they're trying to lock down. You know, they're, they're sending out bulletins to be on the alert for a van. They don't really know anything other than a van. On the throughway, maybe heading into Canada and everywhere. And ended up being a, unsurprisingly, given the amount of money that was stolen, a, a major investigation with, with tons of cops that night. As police arrived, they found two guards on the scene. But the third, Tom O'Connor, was missing. He was presumed to have been kidnapped by the thieves. Good evening, I'm Liz Vega. Eyewitness News is at the scene of an apparent robbery of a Brinks truck near downtown Rochester. If anyone saw anything suspicious about 7 o'clock tonight, please call 911. Again, the robbery took place near the Brinks building in the 300 block of South Avenue about 7 o'clock. We will update you as soon as... My name is Paul Hawkins. I'm a retired FBI agent in Rochester, New York. I was the case agent on the Brinks Armored Car Robbery back in January 5th of 1993. Shortly after the locals found out about it, they called us. It automatically comes under our jurisdiction, and uh, we you know, all got called out that night. One of the bigger pieces of evidence was a tire impression because it was in January, so there was a lot of grit and road salt and, you know, dirt on the floor of the depository. So there were pictures taken of that tire impression. And one of the things that happened that night that really also became crucial uh, was uh, one of the investigators for the Rochester police took measurements of the width of the tires. And then he, that night, went over to the public safety garage, which is a big garage for the courts, the police station, the jail. 
and went around different vans and started just measuring the tires to try to see if he could find one that was similar measurement. And uh, he, sure enough, he found a particular type or two. The reason the van is so critical is because the two guards in the depository that night said there was a sliding side door van used in the robbery because it had that very unique sound when you pull it open. Because back in the 90s, you got to remember, I mean, not everybody was making, you know, minivans back then. It was pretty much kind of like Dodge. You know, the first manufacturer of the minivan was Dodge Caravan. Armored car robberies are almost in every instance, almost always involve an inside contact. Bill Dillon was another of the FBI agents who arrived on the scene. They're rarely are they carried off without some form of inside information or cooperation. And that's, you know, that's a given. I knew that walking into this armored car robbery, just as, as you would at any armored car robbery, that you start looking to see what the inside connection was, if any. The name Tom O'Connor, of course, just, just rang a huge bell in my mind. Tom O'Connor was the Brinks guard who had seemingly been taken hostage by the robbers. He was also a retired police officer in the Rochester Police Department. Tommy had quite a reputation, uh, not only on the police department, but after he retired, and was a suspect in a few altercations, let's just say. Was never charged with anything, but he was always on that gray area, kind of walking a fine line. Just in talking, the guards, you know, from what they could gather, from what they were able to hear and what they were able to pick up, while they were under the control of these robbers, there was some sense that these guys were from out of town and that they were leaving to go back to wherever they came from, these robbers. And there was a debate about how many robbers there were, whether there were two or three, and, and, and whether one of them could have been a woman and, and all of that information. New York City had an involvement of some sort in one of the guards' minds. It was not brain surgery at all to say, if Tom O'Connor was the guard that they took with them. If there was any suspicion that New York City people could be involved in this, I think we probably ought to look at New York City and I think we probably ought to look at Sam Miller. Sam Miller was a one-time IRA prisoner in the notorious H-blocks of Long Kesh, or the Maze prison. He spent years on the infamous blanket protests where prisoners refused to wear prison uniforms and covered their own cells with their faeces. Despite the years of brutal existence and violence at the hands of prison guards, Sam was one of the very last men to leave the protest. Shortly after his release from prison, he travelled to the United States, but because of his criminal record, he had to sneak into the country and he crossed the border illegally. It was FBI Special Agent Bill Dillon who had the task of finding Sam. One morning in the mid-1980s, my phone rang and it was an agent uh, from another division whom I knew and he called to tell me that uh, Sam Miller was living in Rochester, New York, and he was an illegal in this country and a, a former uh, provisional IRA uh, activist. We had received information from British intelligence to our American intelligence that he was a former prisoner uh, at Longcash and was now illegally in this country. They were looking at him, frankly, as potentially a terrorist still. That would be the British concern about him, and certainly that would then have been somewhat of a concern for us. So he gave me the information that he had been able to develop 
about where Miller was living. And because he would have been illegally in this country, I immediately went out to that location to see if I could locate him. I went to the apartment, knocked on the door, received no response, knocked on the door again, again receiving no response, could determine that there was no noise or sound inside, tested the handle of the door, and the door was unlocked. And so, you know, with some trepidation, uh, I went in and I found that the apartment was empty, but was fully being lived in. And as I recall, and it, it was very distinctly in my mind at that point, there was still some, uh, there was a pan of water on the stove that was still warm. So he hadn't been gone very long. You know, there was still clothing. It was obviously a very lived-in apartment. There was evidence that he was had been there and that hadn't had an opportunity to very much to take or pack much of anything. Later on, Bill would find out someone had tipped off Sam just moments before he arrived at the apartment. But some of the information he was able to gather that day that seemed pretty minor at the time would years later help steer the FBI investigation of the Brinks heist. I do know from the information that I had reviewed in the rental office that he had a relationship with Tom O'Connor. Now, at that time, I didn't, I really had no information about Tom O'Connor. That name meant very little to me. But he had used people as references and he also showed someone as an employer. In the information that he had listed, he had listed Tom O'Connor as a reference. Uh, Tom O'Connor contacted him and um, was told by checking around in the office with others who had been around longer than I, and they recognized him as a retired Rochester police officer. And so I I contacted him simply to say that I I was coming out to see him. I had his his home address was listed in the rental information. And so I went out to his apartment immediately and asked him questions, and he refused to answer those questions without first consulting his attorney, uh, and that as soon as he talked with his attorney, he would get back to me with his attorney's uh, advice. But the interview at that time was over, and so I went back to the office, and later that day, he did in fact call and say that he had discussed it with his attorney, and that his attorney said that he really had nothing that he could help me with. Bill Dillon is a proud Irish-American. But as he tried to track down Sam Miller, he found himself discovering new layers to the Irish community in the city. And so I started actually learning from from this investigation a lot more about the Irish community and particularly the Irish Norade organization, which was which was very active in Rochester. And that O'Connor and several other people were very, very active in Norade. And Norade had close relations with the Provisional Irish Republican Army. NORAID, or the Irish Northern Aid Committee, to give it its full title, is an Irish-American group that was founded at the outset of the Troubles in Northern Ireland, with the aim of supporting Republican and nationalist groups. NORAID has raised millions over the years in bars and ballrooms across America, and it was in cities like Rochester, with their large Irish-American populations, that NORAID found the most support. They've always insisted their fundraising was only ever used for humanitarian causes, but there were persistent accusations that the group was funding the provisional IRA. In fact, in the 1980s, of all the branches of Norad across America, the Rochester chapter was considered one of the most militant and most willing to do whatever they could to support the IRA's armed campaign. There were several Irish Americans in the area who were actively involved in Norad, very willing to send money over to the people who were who were in desperate need of money over in, in Northern Ireland. But within that, there was this nucleus of people who were more involved in, in support of, of 
weapons and money for IRA. A few days after his first visit to Sam Miller's home, Bill Dillon got another phone call from one of Sam's neighbours who told him someone was at the apartment. It was not Sam, but there was somebody at the apartment and they seemed to be packing things up for him. So I, again, immediately went out there and identified the, the man who was there as a man by the name of Damian McClinton, who identified himself as a friend of Sam's who had been contacted by relatives of Sam and asked to come out there and pack up Sam's goods and send them to this relative. So I fully identified Damien McClinton, and then later on in an investigation and the further investigation of the Nore group, I found that McClinton was also one of that uh, nucleus of people who was involved. A couple of years later, in 1987, the Rochester arm of Norade would attract the attention of police when Damien McClinton was murdered. His body was found outside his place of employment at Genesee Breweries, where he was a supervisor. He'd been shot to death as he was closing the gate at the end of the workday there. And it, it was already winter here. And so um, they were the police were able to see where a vehicle had been parked near where Damien's body was found and that they were able to, to follow the tracks of that car in then fresh snow about a block away to where that car apparently was left and another car was taken from, the, from a parking spot along a curb. In talking to the investigators for the police department, the homicide investigators and their supervisors, I learned that uh, McClinton was um, dating and, and living with a, a woman who was another member of that Nore group who had previously been um, in a romance with Tom O'Connor, and that O'Connor and McClinton were rivals, so to speak, for her. And also, uh, there was some disagreement within the Norade group that McClinton was blaming O'Connor for and O'Connor was blaming McClinton for. So there was friction within the, or the group as well as this uh, relationship that was causing great problems between the two men. And so O'Connor became immediately a suspect in it. And uh, the only reason why they had to abandon him ultimately was he had uh, an alibi which was unshakable. Tom's alibi was that he had been with a close friend that night. They were sitting in a car outside of a mall or a shopping area near O'Connor's home, you know talking about old times. Tom O'Connor was never formally named as a suspect in the murder of Damien McClinton, but his alibi left many in the Rochester Police Department suspicious. He still had friends on the force, but many cops in the Rochester PD had strong views on Tom O'Connor. People who knew him felt he could be a very dangerous man. Pretty soon it became clear Sam had left Rochester and most likely headed south to New York City where he had seemingly vanished into the crowd. Bill Dillon kept searching for him, but that day at the apartment, when Sam had escaped moments before Bill arrived, that was as close as he ever got. That is exactly the closest I'd gotten to Sam Miller. And very regularly, I would reset leads. And as a matter of fact, uh, there was even a meeting that took place between the Joint Terrorism Task Force in New York City, and at which time our, our supervisor had pitched again the importance of trying to locate Sam in New York City because it was pretty much confirmed at that time that he was there, but nobody could get a handle on where he was in New York City or what he was doing. Let's go back to 1993 now and that icy January night at the Rochester Brinks Depot. 
As he surveyed the scene, Bill Dillon considered what he knew about the missing guard, Tom O'Connor. He was closely linked to former IRA man Sam Miller, and he was suspected in the murder of Damian McClinton. It added up to a simple but definite belief for Dillon. O'Connor was someone who might be capable of this kind of crime, and he knew people who might help him. The next they hear of him is from a a restaurant on the west side of the county, west of Rochester, a few miles outside of the city, uh, that uh, he has sort of stumbled in there really looking bad and basically said that he'd been taken hostage and he needs an ambulance. He gets a shot of Southern Comfort to help help him get through. And um, he's taken to the hospital just to check on his health. The police show up, but they investigate and question him. As the clock wound on and the millions in cash travelled further away, the FBI decided Tom O'Connor's claims of being kidnapped seemed like the best place to start digging. And he had this rather interesting story about being kidnapped by the perpetrators of the robbery. Two of the investigators who knew Tom O'Connor from the Rochester Police Department immediately set out to go to the bar and, and to interview him there. And then so we waited to get whatever information we could get from the, from that interview, uh, which was very little. Uh, he, he wasn't able to provide very much information to the investigators that went out there from RPD. Uh, you know, he was able to give them minimal uh, description of the people. He allegedly was blindfolded. He allegedly was let off uh, in, the, in the weather, in the bad weather and inclement weather. It, it just happened to be at a, at a bar that was known to be one of one of Tom O'Connor's haunts, which did not exonerate Tom at that point. I think it would be fair to say it only it only probably solidified uh, in my mind and and I think certainly in Paul's mind that this was a lead that we needed to pursue. Yeah, and it didn't take brain surgery. With Tom O'Connor now the main person of interest for the FBI, and what they knew about his friendship with Sam Miller, suspicions started to grow that this could be something much bigger than a simple robbery. This could this robbery could somehow be connected to their affiliation or their support for the provisional Irish Republican Army. On the 6th of January, Rochester woke to the news of the vanished millions. State police helicopters flew over the South Wedge area this morning as authorities took aerial photographs. Authorities combed the woods searching for tire tracks or an abandoned vehicle. While investigators looked towards New York, maybe even Ireland for answers. I had never had a case that was unraveling in front of my eyes like this. Were the millions in cash set to find their way to the provisional IRA? Now I've got this case where it's unfolding in real time in front of me. So it's like I'm already falling behind (laughs) and what can I do about it? One thing was clear. To begin to unravel the mystery, they had to find Sam Miller. Next on Unusual Suspects. His reputation preceded him just because of the fact of what he had been through. And if if that kind of, you know, upbringing and experience doesn't toughen you up, I guess nothing would. Sam Miller's story. The first thing you hear is the helicopters, the British helicopters, it never stops. They're flying around all the time, 24 hours, you know, and the dogs, you bark and all. And your heart's just stomping, you know, and your heart like, and you're just thinking, what the hell is this place, you know? From the troubles in Northern Ireland to years in the notorious cells of the H-Blocks. We're in a speed tiny cell. It's covering your own shade, maggots, everywhere. The stance is unbelievable. There's no air. There's, there's no sky, there's no nothing. Terrified. Panic, you know. 
That's why I don't fear death, because I've already been went through hell. And how it all led him to the United States. You know, I'll admit that, and they know it when I got out. I was a very, very dangerous man. Unusual Suspects is produced and presented by me, Owen Brennan. Sound production is by Lachlan Hart. Siobhan Walsh was production assistant. A special thanks to Rochester Democrat and Chronicle reporter Gary Craig, who you heard in this episode. His book on this story is called Seven Million, and it was a huge help to our production. Unusual Suspects is a Go Loud original.